I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. 3 through 17. We're jumping into the middle of a section that we've been covering over the last several weeks and uh, is telling us of uh, how we should be different from the world around us. And it's not just simply giving us a list of do's and don'ts, but saying, put off the old ways, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and, and put on the new man. So with that in mind, let us hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, I've given you an outline there with a, a number of points, and uh, I've just tried to spell out every point that I'm making so it will be very clear and simple. And I'm particularly concerned about our young people uh, in, uh, in our audience today in our congregation today, because these are issues that are uh, very prevalent to young people and old people as well, to all of us who live in, in the culture in which we live. And we need to be renewed in the way that we think about these things, because we're getting a lot of information about sexual uh, immorality or sex. And we need to understand the correct way to think about these things that the world is telling us. Well, chapter 4 tells us, as I said before, that Christians are to put off the old self, which belongs to our corrupt former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, which is being created after the likeness of God. Now, that means, as Christians, we are to think differently uh, about things, our, our attitude towards things, we're to have different values, and our behavior should be shaped not by the world but by our relationship to Christ. We're new creatures in Christ, as Paul tells the Corinthians. And I can think of no greater area in which we need renewed thinking in the church than in the area of sexual immorality. Among the things which the culture in which we live is consumed, sexual immorality is probably the greatest. Materialism runs a close second. 
Studies show that 96% of couples dating as 18 to 23-year-olds are sexually active and that more than half of the senior adult population in the United States condones that behavior. Those are shocking statistics, but maybe not surprising as we look around us at the TV, the newspaper, etc. Now, this, of course, has caused devastation within our culture because springing from uh, these relaxed views of sexual immorality, uh, we have divorce rates that are well above 50%, and many people don't even bother getting married anymore. Uh, sexual immorality has contributed greatly to the evil of abortion. I was attending a meeting this week uh, at the Women's Resource Center, a meeting for pastors, and Dr. Kathy Tolkien, the executive director, who has come and spoken to us uh, back in November, she told us that 40% of all women in the United States have had an abortion. 40%. A lot of that has happened because of sexual immorality. Now, no doubt, the church has bought into worldly ways of thinking in these areas as well as other areas. It's been widely publicized that the divorce rates for Christians, for professing Christians, are the same as the general population. There, there's no difference there. So, all that to say, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds in the area of sexual immorality. And our behavior must flow from this right and truthful understanding of sex. And I would venture to say that the younger you are, the more urgent it is that you have your thinking about sex informed by the Bible. Now I'm thinking especially of you teenagers and college age folks and singles, that 18 to 23 year old group that is so sexually active. The pressures you face and the opportunities to damage your life through sexual immorality are great in our day. And you're encouraged to do that by our society. That doesn't mean us older people are off the hook. We would all do well to conform all of our thinking to the biblical standards because it's truth. It is the truth. The writer uh, of Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. That's a, a, a great commendation for God's law, God's rules. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we want to conform our understanding of sex by the Bible because this is enlightening the eyes. This is truth. This is good. This is to be desired. And in keeping these things, there is a great reward. And it keeps us also from train wreck in our lives. Now, second of all, there are three typical views that we have today concerning immorality. Two are wrong views and one is the biblical view. Now, before we jump into those three, I want to make a little bit of a definition. Now, he begins by saying that we should uh, abstain from, have nothing to do with, 
sexual immorality and impurity. And the word for sexual immorality here is the word porneia. It's the where we get our word pornography from. And that word means to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, often with the implication of prostitution. The word initially had to do with prostitution, but the word over time expanded to mean to engage in any illicit sex of any kind. And when you couple that word porneia or sexual immorality with the next phrase that Paul uses, all impurity, that encompasses anything Uh, any sexual activity which the Bible forbids. Now, what is that? That would be any sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. And if you want the details of that, you can look throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Leviticus, to see uh, what is forbidden there. Now, we've got two wrong views that are, have been, or are popular in our day and the first and most prevalent view in our culture is that uh, sex is only physical it's just another appetite you know you get hungry for food you go eat you get hungry for sex you have sex it's as simple as that it's just a physical thing nothing more Paul was writing to the Ephesians now the city of Ephesus Uh, had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, the Temple of Artemis. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 19, and and that's we have a big riot in in Ephesus concerning Paul and the people there, and it it was all centered around uh, the Temple of Artemis and what was going on there. This great temple had 127 columns. It was enormous. It was actually bigger than the Parthenon in Athens, so a great temple. And I've had the privilege of visiting uh, ancient Ephesus, and you can see where the temple stood. Uh, there's, it's just now a, a field of rubble and stones and columns that have been broken up. And archaeologists have come along and, and propped up one or two of the columns. But you see uh, there that this temple was vitally important to the people of Ephesus. And Artemis this deity, this goddess, this pagan goddess that they worshipped, was the goddess of fertility. Now, her worship, uh, since she was the goddess of fertility, would have involved temple prostitution. And this would have been something that was promoted and condoned within the culture of Ephesus. I also had the, the privilege of, you know, as we toured around the old city of Ephesus, uh, the, the library of Ephesus is, has been, I guess, is still standing or reconstructed there. And uh, the tour guide told us that there was actually a tunnel underneath the library of Ephesus that went across the street. And there was a brothel across the street so that men could go into the library, tell their wives, oh, we're going to the library, uh, when they weren't going to the library at all. So their culture... Uh, what was going on there in Ephesus uh, was very similar to what's going on in our culture. Our attitudes, our practices were very much like theirs was in their day. Um, this attitude that it's only a physical act, that it's just a physical appetite, uh, is a wrong view. We'll talk more about that in a moment after we get to the biblical view. But let me get to the second wrong view. And that is that 
sex is always bad, defiling, unmentionable, even in the context of marriage. Sex is suspect. Now the church has often been uh, at least accused of or maybe guilty of giving the impression that this is the biblical view. At least in our present climate, the church is accused of being prudish and fearful that people are having too much fun. They want to squelch all of our fun. Well, this has been a a prevalent view through the centuries. Uh, Not so much today. I think most people have a correct view. That's not the biblical view. St. Augustine was uh, one of the greatest theologians in the Western world, 5th century. Uh, He had a, a faulty view of this. He had the view that sex was at least a negative, maybe even an evil. And that influence, because he was such a great theologian, was probably what led to the celibacy of the priesthood in the Catholic Church. If sex is evil, then you certainly wouldn't want your priest engaged in it. And so we have the practice today. This is not the biblical view. The biblical view is this, and this is the important part. Renewing our minds, understanding what the truth is. Now, as far as the second wrong view is concerned, obviously, obviously sex was created by God. Therefore, it's not an evil thing. It cannot be an evil thing. God doesn't create evil things. It was created before sin entered the world. That means the second view is certainly wrong. But it is more than simply a physical act that the first view that I mentioned tells us. It's more than a physical act between consenting adults, that view that's prevalent in our culture today. In the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as making this statement in which he quotes Genesis chapter 2. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus said, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When Jesus and Paul and the other biblical writers use this term flesh, it's the term sarx in, uh, in the Greek language, they mean more than just the physical body. For example, God says in the Bible, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, he's not saying there that he's going to pour his spirit out on everyone's body, everyone's physical body. He means more than that. He means that he will pour his spirit out on all people or all persons. So the term flesh refers to more than just your physical body. It refers to your person, everything you are, soul and body. God's design is that when a man and a woman get married, they become one sarks, one flesh, one person. They're no longer two, Jesus said, but one flesh. This means that these two individuals become one emotionally, socially, financially, I could keep going, the list goes on, and physically. Let me give you an illustration. Sodium is a very unstable metal, and chlorine is a toxic gas. But when combined, they become something completely different. 
And that something is very useful. We use it all the time. It's called salt. Table salt is sodium chloride. Now, it's not just a mixture of these two elements. You don't take a bunch of sodium and a bunch of chlorine and throw them together uh, and expect to get the, just the mixture and get salt. No, a, a chemical reaction occurs when these two come in contact with one another. And I actually saw pictures of it on the Internet. I typed in, you know, how does sodium and chlorine combine to make salt? And uh, the first answer I saw was, it just does, which was not helpful at all. Uh, but it's, you know, we don't make salt this way because it's dangerous. There's a, there's a flash. I saw pictures of someone doing it in a controlled environment. We mine for salt or we extract it from the sea. That's how we, we get our salt. It's something that occurs in nature. But to create the sodium and the chlorine have to come together and, and a transformation takes place. And the same is true of marriage. Now, I married a couple yesterday and I used this illustration and I, and I told them, I said, now I'm not saying that you as individuals were toxic and, and unstable uh, and that you've come together now and improved yourselves. Uh, nothing to do with the toxic and unstable part. But when they came together, they become something different than just two individuals living together, two individuals physically in the same space. They, they became one flesh, one person. They're no longer two. They're a man and a woman, a couple together. Now, when a husband and wife come together physically, they are renewing their oneness and unity and commitment to one another. They're exposed and vulnerable to one another. They give themselves to one another, and they are in essence saying, I give myself and belong completely and exclusively to you. The one flesh is renewed and strengthened in this physical act. But more is going on than just a physical union. It's a, a spiritual and emotional bonding, a reaffirmation of that bond. And it has implications for all of life. Now, this biblical understanding highlights the problems with our culture's view, this, the, second, the first wrong view that I mentioned, that sex is only a physical act between consenting adults. It's just an, an appetite that needs to be fed. You notice, first of all, that this, this faulty understanding of sex is inherently selfish, which absolutely violates God's purpose behind sex. It's about what I want. I want to be fulfilled. I want my desires to be met. I am hungry and I need to be fed. Sexual immorality is always selfish and self-centered. You'll notice what Paul says there in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. That word covetousness may seem strange that it's here in a discussion of sexual immorality and impurity and coarse joking and jesting uh, because we know when we think of covetousness, we think of it uh, as a, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or just to possess more than the other person has. We might translate it as greed or avarice. But do you remember how the Tenth Commandment goes? When God gave the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, what did he say? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, material possessions. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. See, covetousness extends to 
this idea of lust and greed. I want what I, I shouldn't have. I want what I cannot have. It, it goes beyond simply material possessions. Paul uses this term here to say that sexual immorality is all about a greedy appetite for sexual fulfillment. And it violates the purpose and the beauty of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, which should never be self-centered. Now, let me just say a word about pornography here, because it goes hand in hand with covetousness. Pornography is epidemic in our society. Because of the Internet, because people have phones with the Internet, people have computers, you no longer have to go to the uh, shops where, this, where, where magazines are sold or go to places where movies are shown. You can get it right there in the privacy of your own home and, and no one can know about it. It's a great evil that's highly addictive and destroys marriages even before a person gets married. You can destroy your marriage, young people, even before you get married by getting addicted to pornography. The person who has become addicted to pornography is unable to have a giving, unselfish, beautiful sexual relationship with his or her spouse because it becomes all about them and their cravings and desires. And frankly, these things are designed to do things that most women would never want to do or desire to do. It was designed by men, for men usually. Flee from it, young people, especially anybody. Flee from it. Uh, I have counseled men who have had their lives and marriages ruined by pornography. And it's so difficult once you get addicted to stop because it's so available. And you can have it whenever you want in the privacy of your own home. Now, every, everybody has seen it. And I would say our teenagers, absolutely every one of them have seen pornography, especially if they have phones and they have friends. That's all that's required. Now, it seems like a little harmless pleasure that doesn't hurt anybody else, but that's a lie. And that's why Paul says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words are, it's harmless. It's just a physical appetite. It doesn't hurt anybody else. It's just you. These are all lies. So pornography, my warning there, stay away from it. Get some accountability if you're having a struggle with that. Tell someone that you trust so that you can be held accountable uh, when you're tempted to engage in that. Well, back to the broad category of immorality. When a person engages in sex outside of marriage, they are saying, I want to be one with you physically, but I don't want you socially, spiritually, emotionally, financially, or any other way. Now see, that is selfish. I just want your body. I don't want anything else. It's actually very insulting, hurtful, and hateful. That's not the way God designed it to be. Now, not only is it selfish, it's harmful. Now, even though people might think that they're only engaging in a physical act to satisfy their appetite, something more is happening. They are connecting with another person on an emotional and spiritual level. The one flesh aspect does come into play here, but since people who are engaging in immorality view it as only uh, a physical act, the other aspects, the emotional and spiritual bond, 
do not exist because it's outside of marriage. Now, if you physically become one flesh with someone and you, you, you do create an emotional, spiritual bond with that person, and, and when, when something grows together and becomes one and you pull it apart, it's never a good thing. When flesh grows together and you pull it apart, you rip it apart, it becomes a wound. It's not a good thing. And that's what happens. When, when you engage in sexual immorality, it tears you. It tears your soul, your spirit. It damages you. And there's a sense, every time you engage in it, in which your soul is ripped apart. Well, God's standards in this, or any other area for that matter, are not arbitrary and repressive. You know, the, the culture tells us that. Oh, you know, you're always trying to bring us down and spoil our fun. No, God has our best interests at heart, always. He wants the best for us. And the best for us is to not engage in sexual immorality or impurity, covetousness, or any of these things that are listed here. Now, he moves beyond the physical uh, to our speech. And he says in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I only want to say this and point you to the quote on the front of the bulletin. G.B. Caird in his commentary said, Where vice is regarded as amusing, the practice of it comes easy. Where people joke around about and make inappropriate and filthy and crude jokes about sex, which all you to encounter that, you just need to turn on the TV. And, it, and within 10 seconds, you're going to get it with any sitcom that you see. Where people laugh about it and think, oh, it's, it's something to be, something to be joked, joked about is never something serious. You know, you don't joke about things that are serious. So the implication when people are joking about something is that it's not a big deal, that we can joke about it. And that's what Carrot is making the point. If we think that it's not important, that it's not a big deal, and it's just a joke, then, hey, why can't we engage in it? It's not a big deal. Christians need to have a different practice about you know, what we say, what we watch on television and at the movies, what we listen to, uh, it's easy to go along with the culture. I've done it myself, to fall into the practice of watching certain shows or listening to certain types of music that are immoral, that are promoting an immoral lifestyle. And Paul says it in the strongest of terms, let this not even be named among you. That's a strong way of saying don't have nothing to do with that. Don't be connected with that in any way. And he goes on to say later, don't be partners with people. Who, who are engaging in this sort of activity. So, enough said about that. Then fourthly, there's a warning here concerning immorality. Uh, verse 5, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, the word inheritance is important. Who gets an inheritance? You don't... You don't earn an inheritance. You know, there are some movies out there. I remember Brewster's Million. You know, millions. 
Uh, so it was an old movie, and then it got remade in the 80s, but the fellow had to, he had to spend like $3 million in order to inherit $30 million. And he couldn't tell anybody that he was doing that. So all of his friends thought he was going crazy because he's spending money right and left trying to get the bigger amount. Well, that's, he's trying to earn his inheritance. Typically, an inheritance is something you get because you're a child. You know, you just are a child and you inherit what's left from your parent or parents. This is what we're talking about here in the Bible. This inheritance in the kingdom of Christ is for his children. It's for his people. You don't earn it or deserve it. And we're not saying that sexual immorality, you know, whether or not you practice that is your admission slip into heaven. Now what Paul's saying here is a warning. He's saying, look at yourself. If your life is marked by a practice of immorality uh, or of any of these things that he mentions here, then you can have no assurance that you're actually a child of God. You may call yourself a Christian, you may profess Christianity, but if you are engaging in these things habitually and you're not changing, you're not seeking to repent, then you can have no assurance that you're a child of God. This is not saying that, you know, if you've ever engaged in sexual immorality, that you're going to hell. You know, some people would approach it that way. But he's talking about, you know, habitual practice. Listen, We've all broken the seventh commandment, at least in our minds. Jesus said, even if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. We've all done that. We've all committed spiritual adultery. We've been unfaithful to Jesus. You know, we're the bride of Christ, his church, and he's the bridegroom. We've been unfaithful to him. This is a good measuring stick for us. You know, where are we spiritually? But know that, yes, we have broken the seventh commandment and we will break it again, most likely. But there is forgiveness in Christ. And I want to stress that at the end. If you go back to verse 2, he's telling us to be like, like God. We, we talked about this last week, about forgiving one another. But he says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He died for us so that he could forgive us and cleanse us from these things and, and get us out of bondage to sins, to sin in general and to specific sins like immorality and pornography and, and crude joking. He has died so, to free us. So all we have to do is look to him and find cleansing and forgiveness Come to him, turning and saying, I don't want this anymore, Lord. I want to follow you. I want your ways. Give me strength and help to do so. And the Lord says, if anyone comes to me, any, anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ offered himself up to secure that for us. So whether or not uh, it's in your mind in your practice, in your life, in your behavior, whatever it is, come to the Lord, come to Christ, and he will cleanse and, and forgive you and give you strength and power because sin is no longer your master. Christ is. Let's pray together.